0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And not too long ago, we talked about this really amazing 1,000 mile escape to freedom by Ellen and William Craft. And it took place in 1848. It was, it involved cool disguises and really close calls and, uh, surprisingly luxurious accommodations. Um, but one important thing to note about it is that it took place at the tail end of slavery in North America and This time for this episode, we're going to go way, way back to a time when slavery was really changing and kind of, in my opinion, at least kind of becoming more of what we think of when we think of slavery, what we might have learned in elementary school or high school, that period of slavery between the American Revolution and the Civil War.
1: Yeah, it was really evolving in in this particular time period that we're going to talk about. And it was when whites were becoming very uneasy about their growing minority status, especially as slave uprisings were becoming more common. And the particular instance that we're going to talk about today, the Stono Rebellion, it was likely the most important of these pre-American Revolution uprisings. It was unsuccessful, but it was really bloody expensive, and it really directly affected a lot of the laws regarding slavery in South Carolina at that time. Yeah, and it scared people. It scared the white people
0: in South Carolina a lot, and it made them enact legislation, like you mentioned, but um, also just sort of changed their outlook on slavery and and how they thought about it. Um, And according to Unius P. Rodriguez, who compiled uh, the Encyclopedia of Slave resistance and rebellion, this two-volume set of like every slave rebellion and instance of resistance you can think of. He wrote, quote, the Stono Rebellion had important consequences on the development of slavery in what would become the United States. And briefly, in September 1739, the future of slavery hung in the balance. So I think that gives you a pretty good sense of how significant this event, this rebellion was. And, uh, yeah, it took place in 1739, the morning of September 9th, which was a Sunday.
1: Yeah, so just to set it up a little bit for you here, the initial rebellion, it involved 20 African slaves, and they were led by a fairly recent arrival to the colonies named Jemmy, who started the whole thing off by breaking into a store on Stono River Bridge, which was about 20 miles southwest of Charleston. And During this break-in, he killed the owner of the store, Robert Bathurst, and his associate, Mr. Gibbs. Or, Or some of the rebels did. Some of the rebels did, correct. And he placed their decapitated heads on the store's front porch. So... Yeah, pretty, pretty serious message they're sending there. It wasn't just kind of a random act or a theft. Um, yeah. They did steal some guns at the time, but I think that the the heads on the poles really sent the message.
0: Definitely sends a strong message. And and from there they started marching down the main southern road. And okay, this is probably the first part that's really caught you off guard. Maybe the decapitated heads did it, but the <laughs> southern road, that doesn't seem to add up to how we normally think about Slaves trying to escape to freedom. But they were, in fact, bound toward Georgia, which is exactly, ironically, exactly where the crafts were fleeing from. So it seems the rebels' plan was to get to this growing maroon establishment that was in St. Augustine, Florida, which, of course, at the time was in Spanish control. And they were going to get there by way of the Georgia coastline. But once they got these guns, they didn't exactly hurry on their way down the coast. Quite the contrary, they stopped and attacked stores and homes and plantations and sort of raised their numbers too. More and more slaves, rebels, or just people thinking they might be successful and they'd try to get out of town with them, joined up with the band.
1: Yeah, they pretty much wreaked havoc on along this journey of theirs. They spared a few white people that they encountered. But a lot of times when they met someone on the road, they would just kind of take them out. So a lot of the people who were spared were people who were kind to slaves. So for example, an owner of the inn who had known to be so was spared along the way. Others were not, though. Others were not. Uh, Mr. Godfrey and his son and daughter, they were killed, I think, in their homes, right? Yeah, and um, a lot of slaves were joining up, too. So uh,
0: it's not just that they're coming into houses and and killing people, but the slaves are, are fleeing their plantations and homes and joining this band. Uh, but uh, the occasional slave did stop and fight the band or um, try to protect his or her own master. There are a few instances of that we're going to talk about later. Um, but one really close run-in, and I think one that really shook up the South Carolinians later was that the lieutenant governor himself, Lawrence Bull, had a very close call with the band of rebels. He was nearly killed. Fortunately for him, I guess he was on horseback and so he managed to escape. But at that point, he went on to sound the alarm in nearby Granville County. But meanwhile, the group was moving south, they, they were slowly progressing on towards their goal.
1: Right. So by the time they were at Jacksonboro Ferry on Edisto River, there were about 60 to 100 of them. But they didn't cross the river and just continue on. They stopped to dance and sing. That's probably the second part that's really
0: made you take pause. And historians have wondered why they did this. Yeah. Were they just too tired to continue or something? Yeah. And it's been suggested maybe they had... Um, imbibed quite a bit by this point and just wanted to stop and party or maybe there was another suggestion by the historian William Thornton that dancing was a crucial wartime exercise and we're going to talk about that a little more later too but it was, it was just something you would do. It was, it was non-negotiable. But stopping by the river to dance and sing ended up being the band of slaves undoing because the militia caught up with them during the delay and attacked them in the open field. The rebels were able to get off two volleys, but finally the militia returned fire, killed 14 of them. And after that, the main rebel group that was left just scattered and probably about 40 of them. It's it's hard to say just because things were dealt with so haphazardly on the field, But probably about 40 were captured, questioned, and then immediately killed. And their decapitated heads were put on the mileposts going towards Charleston to to send a message to other would-be rebels.
1: So contemporary accounts of this event say that this was sort of the end of it. But that's not really the case. Some of the rebels did reform and they continued traveling south. But they were intercepted on the 10th, which was the next day, by mounted troops. Others of them kept on going, and a second skirmish took place about a week later, Yeah, and that was 30 miles from the first battle at Jacksonboro Ferry. After that, a bunch of rebels dispersed again, and they were pretty much tracked down one by one.
0: Yeah, but some managed to stay in the field for a really long time. I mean, as late as December, that's when one of the rebel leaders was apparently caught. Uh, Not Jemmy. People don't know what happened to him, interestingly enough. But all in all, if you get all the way to December, about 25 whites were killed, probably about 65 Africans and African-Americans, as we mentioned, because things were so haphazard and the executions just sort of happened on the field. There aren't really good records about it. Plus, we should note that there's only one primary source for the story and then a few secondary accounts that are contemporary to the story. So, uh, the information is pretty patchy on something, on an event that is so important. So the question we really have to ask ourselves, though, is why did the slaves revolt? And some of those reasons are going to be pretty obvious here, as we will find out in a minute. But it was a question that was asked immediately after the revolt by the white people involved too, the white people in South Carolina. And interestingly, they were not inclined to blame their own cruelty so much as they were inclined to blame Spanish propaganda. There was a great fear at this time because of Spanish-British tensions that Spanish agents were lurking around and uh, convincing slaves that they could flee to Florida and, and be free in these maroon colonies. So this was a legitimate fear of plantation owners and slave owners at the time.
1: Yeah, and historians still debate about this a lot, too, about the kind of the reasons behind this revolt. And a couple of things they debate about are whether the Stono rebels were actually more influenced by the terrible conditions they faced in South Carolina, or whether it had a lot more to do with the skills and the experiences that they had pre-enslavement when they were living in Africa. And we're going to talk about both, because I think we both kind of agree that there's really no reason why the two can be have to be mutually exclusive, I guess I should say.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I see no reason why somebody wouldn't be influenced by his current conditions as well as what he had known before he became a slave. Um, Or you can have some mix. It's a rebellion. There are lots of different people involved. But before we get into all of that, and I guess to sort of help explain Some of the reasons why you might be inclined to rebel being a South Carolinian slave. I'm going to give you a little history of slavery in South Carolina. And the early, to understand it, you have to understand that the early settlers in the Carolina colony were bent on making money. They wanted to make Lots and lots of money, and a really good way to do that is to set up a plantation system, in this case, a plantation system based on rice cultivation. And because a lot of the colony's earliest settlers came by way of the West Indies, they had already seen what a slave-run plantation system looked like, which looked very different from, from some of the earlier American colonies.
1: Right, and their first slaves were actually Native Americans who were purchased by Indian traders who would sell the losers of intertribal wars that were going on. But after the Yamasee War of 1715, many of these tribes left the low country, and that created a labor vacuum for yeah. the plantation owners. So there was a marked increase in the importation of slaves from Africa, specifically a lot of slaves from the West region of Africa, where rice cultivation already thrived, so they they were familiar with that.
0: They figured they had an existing specialty already.
1: Uh, So it doesn't take long, just a
0: few decades, and South Carolina becomes one of the wealthiest North American colonies. But there's a little issue here. And that's that rice cultivation requires a lot of workers. That's why they wanted to import slaves in the first place, for cheap labor. But it didn't take that long for blacks to outnumber whites or to, to get pretty close to it. Um, one example here, in 1740, there were 39,000 blacks in South Carolina, probably 50% of which had arrived from Africa in the past decade. So it, it's not just... Um, a racial imbalance at this point that the white South Carolinians are fearing—it's that it's a racial imbalance, not with African Americans and whites, but with Africans and whites.
1: Right, and this set up sort of an interesting dichotomy, I guess, in their relationship. According to Perry L. Kyles, um, who wrote an article for the Journal of African American History about the issue. All white people had to kind of buy into this collective identity, so to speak, which subjugated slaves. And it created a particularly harsh slave system, which had already been made worse by climate and disease in the and area. rice cultivation. It's yeah. a pretty terrible thing to be doing. So you weren't English or Scotch at this point. You were just white.
0: Yeah, which is something that stands out, I'd say, in in this time, certainly, well before the American Revolution. And this distinction, this, you, you aren't from wherever your European ancestry is from, you're just white, was kind of illustrated in legislation of the time, too. In 1737, South Carolina's assembly passed the Patrol Act, which required all white males to police slaves. And then in January 1739, they passed the Security Act, which went a step further and required that all white males arm themselves on Sunday, which we should note Sunday was a day when slaves were granted a little more freedom to do work for themselves, you know, do their own farming, try to save up some money or something and could move around a bit more. So it was thought necessary got to keep your guns on you in church on Sunday. Uh, The big fear, though, was not just the slaves and not just this racial imbalance, but that the Spanish were lurking around and might lure slaves away and promise them freedom. And it was Potentially a legitimate concern, because in 1738, 23 slaves had escaped and made it all the way to St. Augustine.
1: But the fears of Spanish influence were only part of it. There's also the customs and the experiences that some of the Stono rebels brought from Africa, which would have allowed the Spanish to be so influential in the first place. And there are some reasons for that. So, I don't know, Sarah, I think maybe... Can you set this part up a little bit? Yeah, I read an
0: article by John K. Thornton in American Historical Review, and it's interesting because it's actually referenced in a lot of other places. But he has an argument that the Stono rebels, at least some of them, maybe some of the leaders especially, were definitely influenced by experiences and customs from Africa. And one of his points is that many of the rebels were probably recent arrivals, and they weren't recent arrivals from Angola, which is what the surviving primary source tells us, but instead from Congo. It gets a little confusing because I think the area where they're from is Angola today, but um, that's beside the point. Another issue that he mentions is because the former Kingdom of Congo had voluntarily converted to Christianity back in 1491, so a really long time before this, most of its people were Roman Catholics, so there might have been some issues there, Christians sort of resenting the fact that they're enslaved by other Christians, and um, maybe a little affinity with the Roman Catholic Spanish, too. And a third point is that there was potentially some language in common, because... A lot of people from Congo, or at least some people from Congo, would have understood Portuguese because Portuguese was, in fact, the language that dominated trade there and was taught in schools for the upper classes. Um, if some of these slaves did have familiarity with Portuguese, they might have been able to understand some of the Spanish they heard and some of the stories they heard about freedom in Florida.
1: And then finally, this wasn't a potential motivator, but more like a possible explanation for the way things went down, was that a small band of rebels supposedly handled firearms very well. What this meant was that while the expertise could have been picked up in the colonies, it's very likely that it could have come from experience in fighting in Congolese militia.
0: Yeah, um, there were quite a lot of civil wars in Congo in the decades before this. And it's possible that some of the slaves who participated in this rebellion were at one point the, on the losing side of, of battles back in Congo, but they had some militia experience. They knew how to carry a gun. They, uh, used flags and drums. And this also helps explain the rebels using banners and drums and, and dancing. And so dancing, yeah. These, you know, it's, it's circumstantial, but I think it, it's an interesting thing to look at, especially when there is so little, Written, written record here to, to consider these things. But whatever the reasons for rebelling, once the slaves did rebel, they were, they were marked. I mean, they were done for because to the white South Carolinians, success, the success of the slaves could have meant like further revolts. It could have meant this spreading throughout the colonies and upending the entire slave system. I mean, that might be going a little far, but. They had to shut this down. They knew it was a huge, huge threat to the way of life that was making them so wealthy.
1: So they didn't just hunt the rebels down all the way through the month of December, but they passed laws that further subjugated blacks in South Carolina. So even though they didn't have a lot of rights to start out with, and you would think it would be impossible to kind of further reduce those, those, they... um, They did just that. And it was partly the aftermath that made Rodriguez call the Stoner Rebellion the single most important African slave revolt in the history of what would become the United States. And
0: I should just note, this guy has written or edited a lot of books on slavery, including this whole encyclopedia. So I feel like that's a pretty strong statement. Yeah, it's saying
1: something if he says that it was a major revolt. Um, A few examples of things that they did. In November 1739, the General Assembly decided to strengthen the patrol. Act of 1737, which meant that militia would now be in charge of the patrols instead of just the slave owners. Every white man. Mm -hmm. And then in May of 1740, the Assembly passed the Negro Act. And it wasn't like the South Carolina slaves, as we mentioned, had a lot of freedom to start out with, but now they were not allowed to grow their own food. They couldn't assemble in groups. They were not allowed to earn their own money. They were not allowed to learn to read and just really reinforce the existing slave code. So policies that had been in place before, restrictions that they'd had, they really enforce them now. I think in the beginning, we talked about how it was evolving a little bit. And before, there were some restrictions in place that they just were a little bit slack about, I guess. They were there, but not everyone observed them.
0: You could you could enforce, a master could enforce the restrictions as he saw fit. I guess that's the point to make. Uh, the previous slave code had been built up piecemeal over decades and decades. At this point, suddenly there are universal laws about how you're supposed to to, to treat your slaves. But it wasn't just changes to the slave code, though. The assembly also decided that the slave population needed to be less African and more African-American um, because it seemed like the Recent imports were more prone to rebellion, at least, at least from their personal experience. So in April 1740, they passed a duty bill which levied a tax of a hundred pounds per head on slaves entering after July 1741. But a really interesting thing about this bill, it, it wasn't just set up to discourage importing slaves from Africa. The plan was to use all of the money for the, the tax to fund this account that would ultimately draw poor white Protestants to South Carolina. So you'd really change your ratio. You're, you're importing fewer slaves and then bringing more white people to South Carolina. I think it's very bizarre, but not all the changes were based in legislation either. Some of them were just the way people thought about handling their slaves and, and dealing with these huge communities that lived right outside their door.
1: Yeah, they made these attempts to kind of fracture the slave community. So they would reward informers, for example. You could tell on somebody and that was seen as something good to do to your master. For example, 30 slaves were rewarded for their loyalty during the rebellion. One in particular named July, he was actually freed.
0: Yeah, most of them, though, didn't get rewards that were quite on that level. Um, I th- there's, a, there's a document you can read about, I guess, the other 30, or at least a few of them, just getting suits of clothes and new shoes and stuff. And that was like the big reward for <laughs> not participating or saving their master's lives.
1: Makes me wonder what July did.
0: to get freed. I guess July just got lucky, because it sounds like the other ones did pretty much the same thing. But um, it's interesting though, you think all of these these changes would have a long-term effect on how planters related to slavery. You know, like maybe they would swear off imported slaves for a long time if they they really thought that this was a serious problem, but it doesn't take long at all for them to go back to importing slaves again. It, It increased after 1744, and by the American Revolution, the black population in South Carolina was almost double the white population, which I think is an astounding statistic and clearly shows that they were the white planners were definitely more interested in making money than these perceived security threats.
1: Things were a little different, though. With the passing of the Negro Act, more slaves started to take up means of passive, less obvious resistance. So actions that, for a lot of us, I think, are more familiar. They characterize the next 100 years or so of slavery in America, and I think they're probably what more like what we associate with
0: yeah, slavery kind of, today. Like I mentioned when we were just starting out this episode, but uh, the things you learn about in your high school history class, the slowdowns, poisoning, um, breaking equipment, that sort of thing, uh, sort of more what we associate with slavery between the Revolution and the Civil War, but I think it's interesting that this rebellion might have played a little part in establishing that system that that we're more familiar with.
1: Yeah, it's a kind of a grim tale, but one that's necessary if you want to understand kind of the whole history of slavery. History in of slavery,
0: definitely. Um, and I think because it is so grim, it brings us to a slightly happier listener meal. So this message is from Tia in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and she wrote, I just finished listening to your podcast on the craft's escape to freedom, and I couldn't help but be awestruck. It made me want to learn a little bit more about the couple. And after some initial digging, I read that on their flight from Boston to England, they first came through Halifax, Nova Scotia, where I live. They traveled by land to Halifax and then by sea to England. As a proud Haligonian, perhaps? not exactly sure how you folks pronounce that. I'm going to go with Haligonian, though. I was very happy to see that our city played a small part in this amazing story, although not totally surprised, as a major port at the time, Halifax, Nova Scotia, and the Maritimes in general, often played an important part in many slaves' escape to freedom. So, that was interesting. We We actually did run into the fact that they escaped... Halifax, didn't get into all the details about how they got to England, but um, it's definitely worth sharing with you guys and and thank you for sharing it so succinctly with us, Tia. She also suggested that if we want to do a little more Canadian history, as we always come back to Canadian history, uh, she suggests the Halifax Explosion of 1917, which I think the anniversary of that came up not too long ago. Um, We follow the Nova Scotia archives on Twitter, and they put together a pretty interesting exhibit on the explosion that were checking out not too mm-hmm. long ago
1: mm-hmm. to uh, check that out too
0: yeah but you can follow us on Twitter if you want to send us messages and stuff we're at Missed in History uh, we're also on Facebook and you can send us your emails and comments um, at Podcast at howstuffworks.com
1: and if you want to learn a little bit more about a topic that came along a little later in Black history, you can check out an article called How the Emancipation Proclamation Worked on our website by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
1: To learn more about the podcast, Click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.